0: Unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online, somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. So
1: the same.
2: Welcome to the final episode of season two of the Christian Humanist podcast, episode 21 overall, although it's actually episode 24, thanks to our weird numbering system when one of us isn't here. Uh, I am your moderator for today, unemployed graduate student, Michael Farmer. Uh, Joining me as always is assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, home of the highway tractor, Nathan Gilmore. How's it going, Nathan? (laughs) I'm doing all right. Also joining us from somewhere south of there is graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia, David Grubbs. Hanging in there, David?
3: Yes, sir. Indeed.
2: You guys are both at the end of the semester and have additional work to do. Uh, since I'm unemployed, I have nothing more than usual, so maybe it's good that I'm <laughs> moderating today. Uh, our, uh, our topic is literary criticism, but before we get into that, we have a few housekeeping things to take care of as usual. Uh, first, do we have any listener feedback?
0: Uh, we did have a an email from Sam Mulberry on our Judas podcast. He did recommend that we go check out uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, Sam, I knew that that was something that was a gap in my own Judas lore, so I will certainly make a point of watching that at some point.
3: I actually got a bit of feedback from uh, one of our, our new regular listeners, but who, who mainly interacts with me on Facebook because he's an old friend. Um, a fellow named Sean Reed that I actually uh had a had a couple of classes here uh, at UGA with, but uh he he recommends uh Jesus Christ Superstar as well. Um interestingly enough, uh he also identified uh he shared a bit of his conversion experience uh with me and uh, he 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 said that he identified uh very strongly with judas you know right in 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 that kind of period of conversion um and so that that was a, a kind of a, a very interesting point and want to give him a shout out too
2: well fantastic uh, if you want to send us an email that we won't get to, uh, at least for a few for a few weeks, uh, you can send that to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. All right, so uh, on the blog this week, we've got a post about technology anxiety from Nathan Gilmore, the history of technology anxiety, I suppose. Uh, one, <laughs> one about the pathetic fallacy from David Grubbs, and then one about apostolic succession and the Protestant church from me. Um, you can feel free to read those while we're talking here. And the address is (laughs) christianhumanist.org slash chb. I also uh, wanted to take a moment and explain our summer plans to everyone. The blog is going to continue basically as normal, so each of us is going to post at least once a week, um, so don't give up on the blog. Additionally, we're going to be doing what I like to think of as season 2.5 of the podcast. You're going to get. Because one we episode- love weird
0: numbers. <laughs>
2: it's true. We, we, uh, we, we probably have more decimal places than any podcast in history, <laughs> other than the Pi podcast, of course. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this summer will be episode or season 2.5, and you'll get one episode a month, um, and the episodes will probably be a little shorter than our normal six-hour episodes, and they'll be on um, light topics. And the two I know we have for sure are one on stand-up comedy featuring Nathan's brother, and I don't remember your brother's name.
0: His name is Ryan.
2: Nathan's brother, Ryan Gilmore, and uh, one on fandom featuring my wife, Victoria. So don't give up on us over the summer. We're not dead. We're just hibernating, and we'll stick our heads out of the cave every so often.
3: Yeah, my wife really wants to be on an episode, too, but that's mainly because Victoria is going to be on one
2: uh jealousy is an ugly thing with uh with jealousy in mind let's dive right into our topic which again is literary criticism and uh nathan let's begin our discussion um apophatically by deciding what literary criticism is definitely not and and I think one thing we can probably pretty easily set literary criticism apart from is what gets called critical theory in all its forms post-structuralism, feminist theory, post-colonialism, etc. So uh, what's the difference there? What separates uh, literary criticism from literary theory?
0: Well you can look at this from a couple angles. One of them is the history of each practice is a little bit different. Critical theory as we talked about a few weeks ago has its origins in the academy Uh, It's something that rises up when the German model of the university becomes uh, the predominant model in the English-speaking world, and people have to publish in refereed academic journals. Uh, These critical theory approaches, whether they be Marxist, Freudian, Nietzschean, tend to generate lots of articles. Uh, So critical theory, you're largely thinking about something that happens in the academy for the sake of publish or perish. Literary criticism is more varied in history. In the last couple hundred years or so, it has tended to arise not out of the culture of the academy primarily, but primarily out of the culture of newspapers. Uh, When newspapers were a more robust operation than they are, obviously they're on life support right now, uh, they had literature sections, and in (coughs) those sections people would write about their reception of various literary works they would write about what's worth reading what's not worth reading why it's worth reading and so it comes out of a culture of amateurs uh, who are interested in improving their taste in what to read whereas critical theory emerges out of a university setting where the interest is more in creating a systematic philosophy within which literature is one element uh, David, would you isolate any other differences?
3: Um, I, I just to hard back to a note that, uh, I think we played in, in the theory episode, uh, which is, uh, I, I think that theory tries to, uh, explain what shows up in literature, uh, as a result of processes that are not part of, uh, an author's conscious artistic control, whether, uh, you know, unconscious psychological forms, or or social forces that are that are uh, un, you know not consciously uh, uh, thought about, but just kind of show up <laughs> in in the text. Um, but I think I think criticism is is more interested in encountering an artist as an artist instead right, of
0: right, right. And then on the other hand, you know. Literary theory isn't nearly as interested in whether or not a work is any good or not.
3: Right, right. We, you know, which is why, you know, I, I can I, I remember theorists in uh, my introduction the, the introduction to theory course I took talking about doing readings of the backs of matchbooks and things like that. And Ruffini I just to, and I just want to throw my hands up.
0: Text <laughs> is text, right? Well, yeah, yeah. And, and I think this has to do with the overall projects of the two. Like I said, I mean, literary criticism arises out of a consumerist model: which book should I buy? Which book should I not buy? Whereas theory is more interested in a systematic philosophy. So you know, a system is going to be bigger than a bookstore. And I realize I'm being the the, the uh, sanguine one again, but that I does think you just theorized
3: model. criticism.
0: I did. I, wow. I, I didn't even realize what I was doing.
2: He <laughs> does it instinctually. Um, <clears throat> David, uh, Nathan kind of scooped my next question um, when he talked about the li- the literature inserts in major newspapers. And by the way, there used to be one in almost every newspaper. By my count, there's only two left. There's the New York yes. Times Book Review, which I read every week online, and the Washington Post Book World, which I don't. Um, is there a difference, uh, David, between book reviewing, which, which is by and large the sort of thing you'd find in the New York Times book review every week, and uh, what we're calling literary criticism. Is there a difference?
3: The biggest difference uh, that I would see between them isn't, isn't so much one of kind, I think, as it is of, as it is of scope. Um, book reviewing in the newspaper is, I, I, of its nature, uh, focused on timeliness. Uh, fo- focused on uh, reviewing the new books that haven't been read yet, in order to tell uh, an audience who, you know, by and large is not yet familiar with a book, which ones to look at, which ones not. Um, but I, I think you know, as as we continue to, this conversation, a lot of the you know a lot of the critics that we're going to talk about are concerned with. Um, uh, Looking at a, a wide a wider range of literature in terms of uh, the terms of age, um, that uh, whereas uh, book reviewing seems to be uh, kind of like the you know get your fresh milk. <laughs> um, I, I that that's the only thing that I that that I really see. So so uh,
2: for fans of uh, of the New Yorker, book reviewing would be the books section. And literary criticism would be uh, the critic at large section, provided the critic at large is talking about literature and not um, something else.
3: Right. I, I I don't know. Maybe maybe the book reviewer is kind of the the bleeding edge of criticism, uh, the the first reaction, and then later on after uh, after a work has gotten a chance to you know hopefully establish its place in you know in the in the culture in the in the the imagination of people, then it can be come be returned to and and, and reconsidered by uh, literary critics who take a longer view. I don't know.
2: All right, Nathan. One of the best expressions of what literary criticism is and can be comes in W. H. Auden's uh, aphorisms on reading from his book The Dyer's Hand. Uh, Nathan, what does that essay say about? how criticism is done and should be done. And do you have anything to add to or quibble with in that, uh, in that essay?
0: Well, uh, this was actually a, a text I wasn't even aware of until you sent out the show notes. And I mean, it's a fascinating little text. Uh, Auden is obviously, again, part of a world that has largely gone by the wayside. Unfortunately, uh, he's writing, you know, 60 years ago. It's not long at all. Uh, but you know, within the world he inhabits, you know, the, it's that world where every paper has a literature section, like you were saying. And this little piece aphorisms on reading, you know, seems to be a sort of uh, manual, if you will, you know, a, a, a guidebook for those who write literary pieces, uh, literary criticism pieces. And I mean, one of the things that uh, he emphasizes over and over is that uh, insofar as your editors will let you, only write about the really good books because the critic, his role ought to be to help people to discover the good stuff that people haven't discovered yet. He says the bad stuff will take care of itself within (laughs) a generation. People will forget about it. Uh, don't waste your time reviewing the bad stuff because you'll only get it on you. Uh, you know, he says, he says you should overcome evil with good. Yes, he does. He does. (laughs) Um, and by that he means, you know, don't worry about the bad books, just find the good books. You review enough of those, people will stay away from the bad ones anyway. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, you know, rising out of this uh, popular literary culture, you know, I think that it is a, first of all, a fascinating snapshot of that world. Uh, but secondly, I think that, you know, as far as we are readers and lovers of literature, I'll put it that way. Uh, and insofar as we can step away from our apparently instinctive desire to systematize the world, or at least mine, uh, you know, I think that his advice there is good advice. You, know, uh, you ought to spend your time thinking about those books that are worth reading, spend your time recommending books that are unjustly overlooked, and if there are bad books in the world, don't worry about them so much.
2: Nathan, do you find that Alden's rules make literary criticism a uh, completely subjective task? And I mean, if you do, is that a problem?
0: Well, again, I I think that you know, given its moment and giving its context, and I'm I'm not an expert on this text. Like I said, I read it for the first time in preparation for the show. I think (laughs) that in that context, you know, I think that his basic assumption is that if you are getting paid to be a literary critic, then he is going to put trust in you as someone who has developed those habits of reading that he wants to trust. And one of the things that, you know, one of the delightful things he says is that, uh, the best way to tell whether a literary critic is any good or not is to compare your experiences of books you've enjoyed with what they've written. And if you can find a critic who resonates with you, then that person ought to be a fairly reliable predictor of those books that will be good in the future. Mm-hmm. So I I think that it's you know it's one of those things where the objective subjective divide uh isn't nearly as helpful as the experienced and wise versus the too busy to get wise
3: his aphorism on uh the the development of taste over over the course of a life I think is 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 interesting in that point the the first our taste are purely you know, drawn by, by our pleasures, but we, we aren't good at identifying what the source of those pleasures are. And as a result, our taste can be indiscriminate. And then later on we, and then after that, we need to be educated, you know, in taste. But then after that, um, after that education, we, we get a, a, a period of liberty when we can follow our taste, uh, without having to mind so much about, uh, someone else telling us what's what's uh, what's good and what's bad Um, I think what I like most what I like most about Auden is uh, his focus on the pleasure that's in reading and that's that's something that's difficult to difficult it's real but it's difficult to quantify (laughs) and so uh, I, I I think that's one of the things that I liked about it is that it reminded me of why I like to read books
2: well, and, right. and, you know, pleasure is something that comes up actually a lot in critical theory. You get um, Roland Barthes has actually a book called The Pleasure of the Text. Uh, and, and Susan Sontag is, is big on the pleasure of reading, but it's a different kind of pleasure than what Alden's talking about. The The pleasure Bart finds in the text is actually ripping the text apart and reassembling it. That That's the pleasure of the text. Certainly not true of Alden in... in, in aphorisms on literature, right? Right. Uh, Literary criticism, probably most often associated with the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, really, Uh, whether we're talking about the New Critical School or the Heroic School or any uh, number of other schools that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But I don't really have a sense of history here, and I'm counting on you two to give me a sense of history. So, uh, what does literary criticism as a discipline look like in the medieval period, if you're David Grubbs, or the uh, Renaissance, if you're Nathan Gilmore. Are there any seeds of what I think we can both all agree uh, is a pretty good approach that Auden has? Are there seeds of that in in the the medieval period and the Renaissance? And David, let's start with you since you're uh, you study the older era.
3: Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess first I got to pick on you a little bit because um, there's a name that isn't in these notes at all, uh, uh, namely Aristotle. I'm um, not.
2: I'm not familiar.
3: Uh, yeah. Anyway, he wrote this book called The Poetics. Um anyway. Now is that with uh,
2: a C S or an X?
3: <laughs> he wasn't re- recent enough to think that an X would be hip. <laughs> Extreme. Um, <laughs> yeah. Poetics. Um I I, I don't want to say too much about him because we, we've we played the, uh, we, we, we've talked about Aristotle uh, a lot in several different episodes on related issues, um, but uh, something that I, I, I guess I hadn't realized until reading Dorothy Sayers, and and you can chime in uh, whenever you like, Nathan, is is reading reading Aristotle's Poetics as more descri- describing the experience of being an audience uh, of the literature that was that was most effective and so uh, of presenting the uh, principles of uh, the, the plays that seemed to work best were like this. And in that way, uh, you know Aristotle, Aristotle's poetics would be I, I guess literary criti- criticism of the kind that we're talking about. Um, would you concur Nate?
0: Yeah, I think so I you know I, I you know like I said in the uh, mystery episode, you know one of the things that I noted, in the bit of Sayers that I've read is that, you know, she does have, she seems to have internalized Aristotle to an extent that she doesn't even have to cite him. She just basically translates him into a modern idiom. And yeah, I mean, one of those things that, you know, you were talking about that, you know, what appeals to people about the mystery novel is the same sort of thing that Aristotle sees as appealing to people in a tragedy.
3: Right. And, and so his 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 gauge of excellence is, um, not so much the unities themselves as it is the pleasure and the interest um, and the engagement with the audience that unities accomplish. And so in in that case, the, I, I guess the, the the focus of the focus of criticism and is still on the pleasure. Um, now, the problem is that once we get to my period, Michael, uh, uh, the old anglo saxon period, uh, they didn't have Aristotle. <laughs> um, and I've, I, I honestly have, have racked my brain for anything like an Old English uh, uh, evaluation of the aesthetic beauty of art. They certainly appreciated uh, the beauty of art. They talk about it, they talk about art being beautiful, but I, I, I haven't seen anything like a canon of taste. Um, any condemnations of literature that I'm familiar with are based solely on uh, moral principles or religious principles. Don't mm. sing those songs because they're about pagans. Um, I don't know of anything that that's uh, saying don't sing those songs, they're Ugly, um, and I and honestly, I don't remember anything like that. Once you get further on into the Middle Ages, either, uh, I mean, he, once Aristotle was was recovered, he was the philosopher, and what he said was was law. And uh, you know, again, I'm 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 not speaking with an area into an area that I'm super familiar with the reception of Aristotle, but uh, my my impression is that. He was internalized as as the the canon of what literature should be, not necessarily an evaluation of how uh, of how good effect how effective literature works. And so, if his if his principles were applied in the Middle Ages, it was as well. That's not an epic because it doesn't have these features. Not that's not the most effective epic because it doesn't do these particular things well. Anyway.
2: Well, it's good to know I'm not actually missing out on anything other than this era, <laughs>
3: whatever
2: whatever his name is. I'll have to look it up to make the show notes. Uh, Nathan, I, I know there's literary criticism in the Renaissance, so uh, lay it on us.
0: Certainly. And, you know, one of the things that the Renaissance is still struggling with, and it becomes even more intense as the text of Plato is recovered, Uh, is a scene from early in Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, which is still an immensely popular text in the Renaissance. And in in your freshman comp classes. And (laughs) in my freshman comp classes, yes, I won't deny that. uh, In which uh, Lady Philosophy is contrasted with the Harlots' uh, epic and tragedy. uh, (laughs) And, you know, this idea that Uh, not speculative fiction, that's that's science fiction, but uh, that fiction, we'll just call it fiction, stories which are made up is somehow adulterated text that one ought to spend one's time on theology and philosophy and history and other such enterprises is still something that the Renaissance is trying to overcome and that's why the major text that comes out of that era in England at least is actually a defense of poetry from Sir Philip Sidney and the direction that Sidney goes with it, is that uh, poetry, and by poetry he doesn't necessarily mean verse, he's very specific to say, uh, what I mean by poetry is uh, those things which are made, uh, you know, poesis in Greek is the making, uh, and he says, you know, those stories which are made up, uh, they are good in a way that history cannot be, because history can only give you the particulars, uh, but poetry can give you the uni- universals. Uh, and so, you know, early on, you know, what you get is a lot of work defending poetry. Uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's an era where, you know, the, the poetic output is phenomenal. Uh, you know, it, it might've been surpassed by the Romantics. I, I would probably want to arm wrestle somebody if they claim that, but, you know, uh, it's an era where there's definitely a lot of poetry being produced. What's interesting is if you think of Sydney as one bookend, uh, of the Renaissance poetic tradition. You've got to think of John Milton as the other bookend, and what's frustrating and fascinating about his Paradise Regained is that in that brief epic, as he calls it, uh, Christ basically denounces uh, poetry in the, spe- in the speculative mode, says that you know, the Psalms and the narratives of the Old Testament are sufficient and they are perfect, and they don't need any additions to them uh so i mean you know the renaissance period uh, so that we can move on i mean i I would characterize as a sort of perpetual tension uh between the idea that poetry is somehow superfluous and even dangerous on one hand and that it reaches universals in a way that history and philosophy don't on the other Mm.
3: if i can give a shout out to john calvin um in uh, at the beginning of the institutes, he actually defends uh, defends scripture, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, um, in very aesthetic uh, language, talking about the beauty of the language and the beauty of the expression and how oh, a- sure the, the effect it has on the reader. Um, Cotton
2: Mather does the same thing in the Magnalia uh, Christia Americana. He talks about you can go read Herodotus and Thucydides and Xenophon and he lists about (laughs) forty Greek and Roman historians and he says, But they're not going to give you half the pleasure Luke does in his two books. Mm -hmm. Right. So so it's it's another aesthetic defense of scripture, which I'm sure he basically stole from Calvin as he stole so much
0: (laughs) from Calvin. (laughs) Right. Well, and I mean, you know, Milton's (coughs) sorry, strong uh you know, Milton's strong preference for biblical literature is also very calvin flavored so you know once more i mean calvin is the intellectual giant of the period and it shows mm-hmm.
2: well let's skip ahead and i'm i'm gonna go ahead and admit we can't possibly cover uh two thousand three thousand four thousand years of literary criticism so we're this is going to be necessarily Uh, selective and based on what either we think is important or we're interested in. Unlike most of our episodes. Most of them them I think you can pretty much take as the whole undiluted truth. Um, (laughs) One notable pre-20th century discussion of literary criticism comes from Oscar Wilde's dialogue, The Critic is Artist, which is actually a two-part dialogue. Um, and it puts forth the kind of art-for-art's-sake credo that's associated with the end of the 19th century as clearly as anything else from the era. And I, you guys may have something to add about the decadence after um, after I finish this, and uh, we'll keep that in mind. Um, so Wilde structures this essay as a dramatic dialogue, which is actually pretty laughable because both parties talk pretty much exactly like Oscar Wilde does. <laughs> so it's like hearing him in stereo. Um, but the, both of them have... Uh, both of them have his little quips, and, and I mean, they really, they, they both sound exactly the same. So the two of them, uh, one, is, one, of them called, uh, one of them is called Gilbert, and he's the Socrates, and he's Wilde's own voice in the text, and he's explaining things to this other guy, Ernest. And the big question of the dialogue is, what is the purpose of art's criticism in general, and literary criticism in particular? And to answer it, Wilde puts himself in a line that goes all the way back to Aristotle, and he calls this line aesthetic criticism. And uh, what he means by that is, it's not about ethics. It's not about anything other than beauty. Uh, aesthetic criticism, oddly enough, allows Wilde to break down the line between creation, um, artistic production, and criticism, because criticism becomes really, in his hands, criticism is merely self-consciousness, which means it's absolutely necessary for all creation. So you could also call this essay "The Artist as Critic" instead of "The Critic as Artist." It's it's a pretty much interchangeable set of of uh, set of words without criticism though creation becomes stagnant because creation left to its druthers would just repeat itself ad nauseum and criticism is what makes things new so every good artist is simultaneously a critic and that's how he keeps coming up or she keeps coming up with new things but of (laughs) course there's also such a thing as the independent critic the guy who talks about someone else's art and Wilde gives us some guidelines for this person Um, as well. And by the way, uh, that essay also contains a very long, very strange criticism of Robert Browning. So if you're interested in (laughs) Browning and you're interested in someone appear to completely trash him and end up praising him, you should read the uh, essay because he spends the better part of two pages talking about how terrible Browning is, all the while telling us that he's actually praising him. Um, anyway, so Wilde gives us guidelines for the independent critic. Um, he says that ultimately the work of criticism is not about the work of art it's supposedly about. Instead, it's about two things. Number one, it's about beauty itself. So um, that that obviously connects to that aesthetic line from Aristotle. Um, number two, the work of criticism is about the critic, him or herself. And that flies in the face, I think, of what a lot of people consider criticism to be. Um, if you're familiar with the 1970s rock critic Lester Bangs, do either of you know Lester Bangs? No, I
0: don't. Mm-mm.
2: He's about as famous as a music critic can possibly be, um, so that's to say not very famous at all. If you saw Almost Famous, uh, he, he uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman played him in that movie. Anyway, Lester Bangs. If you know Lester Bangs, you probably have some idea of what Wilde is talking about. Bangs would, basically, he would get high on Benzedrine He would listen to a record, and then he'd write a 20-page piece about himself, sometimes only mentioning the record a couple times. And yet, somehow, after reading it, you'd feel like you knew the record better than you did before. So I think Oscar Wilde would love Lester (laughs) Bangs. I'll put him in the show notes and you can, you can uh, look up his books. Um, the most important thing of all, though, is that it's not the job of the critic to explain the work of art. Wilde is very, very clear on this. The critic is not supposed to explain the work. To do so would, to do, would to destroy, uh, be to destroy the mystery that makes that work so powerful. So instead, the critic is supposed to deepen the mystery by reproducing the work of art in a different form. Um, to read criticism of something like King Lear is basically to read King Lear from a different person's mouth. So that's wild, and the Aesthetic School of Criticism, as far as I can tell. Do either of you have anything to add to that very rushed summary?
0: Well, you know, honestly, I've heard of the Aestheticist, obviously. Uh, I realized, preparing for this show, that I I really don't have any idea what art for art's sake actually means. Uh, I think it's just because I'm so deeply immersed in classical and Renaissance ideas of beauty that are very much connected with a sort of, platonic formal, uh, transcendent idea of beauty. Uh, that, you know, when you get to, okay, I don't care about truth, I just want beauty I I can't even figure out what that means. It, well neither
2: <laughs> neither can Wilde because Okay, you, all right. You get him you get him talking about how fiction is fiction poetry. It's not supposed to have a moral. It's not supposed to try to say anything. It's not supposed to have an ethical principle. And then you read The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is among the preachiest <laughs> uh, novels ever written, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I, Wy- Wilde couldn't keep up with The Orange Orch- for Art's Sake, even if he ever believed it. Well, I'm not sure mean, if he Even did.
0: something like The Importance of Being Earnest, which is one of the funniest plays I've ever written, it wouldn't be <laughs> anywhere near as funny as it is if it didn't have a sort of implied moral center that was mocking, bunburying, and other such things,
2: but and that that moral center may be there just for aesthetic effect is, is what a uh, what an aesthete might tell you or a decadent. Those those two terms are kind of uh, interchangeable. Um, it, it may be there just for artistic effect. The the artist need not believe it to make <clears throat> it, it may it may be necessary to make the work beautiful to have this implied moral center.
3: If the
0: artist is an idiot, that's not my fault. <laughs> it's true.
3: <laughs> when Auden talks about uh, a critic needing uh, needing to make explicit what his Eden is, is is that connected? Uh, you're you're talking about a, a wild essay that I've I've hadn't even heard of before. But uh, when uh, when Wild. Uh, what you're what you're saying about uh, the the critic talking about beauty? Do you see uh, a connection between that and Auden uh, Auden saying that a critic needs na- needs to make explicit what he thinks perfect beauty is?
2: Well, I don't think Wilde would say you do. I, I <laughs> Wilde is fairly uninterested in actually explaining anything, best I can tell. <laughs> I mean and okay. if you read if you read his whole corpus, he's so wildly, no pun intended, contradictory throughout that it, it's hard to pin him down on anything. It mm. seems like beauty is something you don't get to define, you only get to experience though. So I don't think he'd be on out side with this. I don't think he'd say you can define your Eden. All you can do is uh, all you can do is live in it. Okay. Well, we can't talk about literary criticism without talking about the school known as the New Criticism, which is, of course, very old at this point. Uh, Nathan, who were some of the major figures of New Criticism, and what premises did they hold, and what do you see as its strengths and weaknesses?
0: Well, I mean, the, the, the big name and really the only one whose text I'm very, very familiar with is Cleonth Brooks. Uh, you know, these are folks who are largely American critics, largely from the Midwest and South. Uh, they're often affiliated with the agrarian movement, uh, which is an anti-liberal and an anti—well, I mean, anti-liberal was anti-capitalist at the time. I I sometimes forget that the distinction between liberal and capitalist is a recent one. Uh, but at any rate, you know, one of the things that they were very interested in opposing was what now gets called the old historicism. Uh, which back then was just historicism, I suppose, that tended to treat literary pieces as symptomatic of some sort of zeitgeist. So one would read Homer, uh, not for the sake of Homer's poetry, but in order to examine uh, the ways in which certain ideals emerge out of Mycenaean antiquity into classical Athenian intellectual life. Uh, One would study Shakespeare, not necessarily for... The beauty of the plays themselves, uh, but so that you could examine the rise of early modernity. And the new critics wanted to take a step away from that approach to literature and say, all right, let's take a look at the text as a self contained unity and let's take a look at the complexity that lies within the text. We don't have to go outside the text because those texts which are great texts are the ones that will sustain. Interest because of their internal complexity, their internal tension, uh, their internal worth. Uh, So, I mean, the new criticism, which is, you know, the butt of a lot of jokes, frankly, uh, in English departments I've been part of, uh, actually has at its roots uh, really some commendable aims. You know, it's to restore uh, some sort of domain uh, to the text of literature itself. Uh, David, I mean, do you have anything to add to that?
3: Uh, just that Tolkien gets stuck in the, the, the new critical camp. Really? Uh, frequently. Yeah. Um, because of, because of his, his lecture, uh, Beowulf and, and uh, the monsters and the critics.
0: Ah, okay. All right. I can see that then.
3: I, I guess the, the distinction is, is that he, he, yes, he did want Beowulf to be treated, uh, as a, as a poem and not as a historical artifact or as a, I, I think even more close analogy as an archaeological dig to be uh, excavated and disassembled to see if you can find any you know relics of you know whatever s- dead civilization produced it um, He wanted it to be read as as a poem as a story he wanted its monsters to be taken seriously and you know and and so forth.
0: Right, and moreover, he didn't want people trying to extract the Christian element so that they could get back to some sort of Ur-Beowulf. Yes. I mean, that that's what I remember most about that essay. That was one that really sort of changed the way that I looked at literature. I, I, that was one of the first literary critical essays I read as an undergraduate English major, and it made just a world of sense to me.
3: Yeah. Well, it's one of the reasons why I'm here doing what I am. What were you going to say, Michael?
0: Well, I was going to say, a lot of people get kind of
2: thrown into the New Critical Camp who don't belong there. And and the biggest one, I think, is T.S. Eliot, who is considered the kind of poet par excellence of New Criticism. But David and I were talking before the show, and, and how on earth can you read a poem like The Wasteland and not reference anything outside the text?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, not to mention four quartets. Not to mention the whole I mean, man. Not to mention. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I mean he's. I mean some, even even proof rock. You know, I mean, you can't read that without knowing yeah, anything. Dante? Anybody? But yeah. the,
2: the new the new critics kind of went off the rails after a while. And, I, and one of the one of the Nathan, I, I would say both you and I, and, and maybe David too, although I don't know. Are are fairly sympathetic to the southern agrarian cause, right? That this is something we can, we can at least partially identify with, mm. L- localism, anti-capitalism, um, tra- traditionalism. That this is certainly, some- this certainly, is, yeah, so- something we can kind of get on the side of. And yet, the New Criticism strikes me as uh, inherently flawed.
3: Yeah, and, well, uh, and out I, I of think character looking, for them. I think looking at Tolkien's. Uh... Tolkien's essay helps to show why it, he had those those sympathies with with the, the the positive things that the New Critics wanted to say about literature. But at the same time, he recognizes explicitly and implicitly that you can't do Beowulf studies without understanding uh, the language, without uh, without understanding the way Anglo-Saxon culture work. Works. He brings in a lot of uh, Norse mythology. He brings in church fathers. Uh, he, he's very careful to put Beowulf within a historical context, but instead of treating Beowulf as a product of the historical context, he treats it as a voice within it addressing it, and a voice that needs to be listened to on, on its own not not simply ignored uh, he puts the artist back into the poem and uh that that i think is is um, maybe maybe the balance between the old criticism and the new criticism
2: well david let's go deeper into tolkien um or at least near near to him uh, at the same time the new critics were ignoring everything outside the text you had another school <laughs> operating and, and this school i believe was mostly in britain and in canada um, which I mean it's kind of kind of British, uh, David. Are you are you prepared to tell our listeners about what's called mythological criticism?
3: Uh, yeah, we'll do um, it. Okay. Um, the well, uh, you know, begins with the Mythography Project, which is old, old, old. Uh, uh the the study of uh, of mythologies, uh, comparing myths with myths and, uh, the recognition, you know, fairly, you know, I think fairly early on, I think there, you know, recognitions of this even in classical texts, that a lot of myths seem to be really pretty similar. And they seem to be telling, a lot of them seem to be telling the same kinds of stories. Um, you know, the, there's, there's actually a, a bit of a joke in, uh, Middlemarch about myth, about, uh, a mythographer who is, uh, Trying to put together mythologies to, uh, uh, I, I believe, to show how the you know it all it all comes from the Old Testament or something, um, and and that was that was pr- a pretty common thing. You actually see a bit of it in the Church Fathers sometimes. Um, that comes down to us uh, in it, it takes a more anthropological flavor in uh, the 19th century. And uh, I think the culmination of it uh, is what you see in James Fraser's Golden Bough. in 18, uh, he started that in 1890, though it didn't get published till I think the teens or 20s. Um, in which he, he takes a lot of myths and he compares them and he finds these, what he sees as consistent patterns of story across cultures and across time. Now, that becomes influential in criticism when uh, uh, when the question begins to be asked where do these patterns come from and how do they fit in with art now? Uh, so that you have uh, Jesse Weston in 1920 published a book called From Ritual to Romance in which she basically took James Frazier's, uh, his theory was that ancient rituals turned into myth. And she takes his theory and basically argues that the Grail romances are uh, artifacts of this uh, ritual myth complex that you see the archetypes of that. Um, Carl Jung picks up on uh, on these things, but instead of saying that these are memories of ritual, these are actually structures of the of the the unconscious, the collective unconscious of of humanity. Uh, we we naturally tell these particular kinds of stories uh, because uh, because we're human, that's the way our minds work. Joseph Campbell picks up on that um, But you've also uh, you know you mentioned Northrop Fry and we gotta we gotta go get to him in uh, uh, middle of the 1900s the I believe in like late 40s, 50s. Uh, he starts writing and he, he embraces the notion of the archetype, but not, uh, he's not as concerned. He, I, I don't think he, he doesn't anchor them in the, the unconscious like Jung does. Um, he, I don't think he's as convinced by the ritual theory, which you get out of Frazer, Um, but he, he more anchors archetypes in the common experiences of humanity, both in the life cycle and in the cycle of nature. And, so, from that, he finds these patterns of story which can be seen in an ancient myth and but also can be seen in literature. And for him, the value in literature uh, is when you recognize these archetypes, realize that they have this this grander mythic significance, and so uh, are are kind of a, a kernel of a sort of human sublime uh, within those stories. If that's really the exact opposite of okay. New Criticism. Yeah, yeah, Bas- basically the exact opposite of New Criticism. <laughs> <laughs> but still, um, you know, I, I think Fry does a better job than, than Jung and Campbell of anchoring, uh, of still making the beauty something that the artist consciously participates in. Yeah. Um, Artists inherit in, inherit these tropes through their culture, but they're still they're still using them artistically. And he val- he seems to value more uh, the art where the archetypes are more apparent. I, but right. you know, I'm no Fry scholar.
0: It, it's no coincidence either that Northrop Fry spent his early career as a William Blake scholar, uh, yeah. who is you know the Romantic mythological poet par excellence.
3: Yeah, his his first book was on Blake. Yeah, um, now yeah, you mentioned Tolkien uh, in connection with this, Michael, and he has he has something similar which he puts forth in his essay on fairy stories, but it's actually a bit closer to uh, the pre nineteenth century mythography, in that he argues that there are these patterns of story, but those patterns of story uh, were um, well, C.S. Lewis called them the good dreams of mankind, uh, but he, he uh, Tolkien, sees those patterns of story as culminating in the gospel. That the gospel is the perfect story made real, and so uh, you know, and I, I think in one in in one sense you can consider Tolkien part of this larger camp. Uh, in that he, f- in that one of the the main beauties that he finds in stories is their participation in a pattern of story, which he sees culminating in in the Christian story. So.
2: So that's uh, that's mythological criticism. While, while while that and New Criticism was going on, there were a couple major movements, and these, these were mostly or exclusively in America. The first one, um, I, I think, has mostly been abandoned. and I think that's that's too. To, to the detriment of literary criticism uh, it's sometimes called heroic criticism which is a pejorative term mostly and it, it's used because the heroic critics really believed in the power of their work in a really unironic way so the heroic critic believes mm-hmm. that literature can change the world and that criticism is going to help that happen and all this took place during world war ii and the cold war so the attitude is understandable right And it's also understandable why it's almost exclusively an American phenomenon, Hmm. because America's coming into its own on the world stage at this time, and so there's a lot of concern about what makes America special, what makes America America. This is when you get the creation of the American canon, so Twain's Huckleberry Finn is really, really important. And there's also a renaissance in studies of Herman Melville, Um, Melville, I should point out, had actually been rediscovered in the 20s, so he wasn't unheard of in the 50s, but Moby Dick gets to be very, very important for heroic criticism, And, and there's some very strange readings of that novel where Ahab is a communist... And uh, and Ishmael is a capitalist. That, that, that takes heroic criticism a bit far from my taste. Um, undeniably, the most important critic of the heroic school is Lionel Trilling. Um, he, has the, he has the distinction of being the first Jewish man to teach at Columbia University, although they made him team-teach. They, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't leave him alone in a classroom. They had to assign a goy to watch over him. <laughs> so his Lorded. big book is called the liberal imagination and when he uses the term liberal of course it's being contrasted with communist not with conservative i uh, really love trilling's work i love the way he takes literature he reads seriously and he takes his own task as a critic very seriously and i love the way that he's willing to make taste into a moral matter which he absolutely is <laughs> um, I'm, I'm much less comfortable than him in doing that but i uh, appreciate that he does it um I did want to say something about the difference between the heroic critics and the critical theorists, who of course often also take their work extremely seriously. Trilling and people like him take literature very seriously as a world-changing force. They take it pretty much as seriously as someone like Matthew Arnold, who we've skipped over, uh, does. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find that sort of faith in the power of art in any of the critical theorists, um, whether they're post-colonialists or feminists or whoever. There, it's the criticism that's important. The literature needs to be critiqued. It needs to be ripped apart. It needs to be put back together. um, But the literature itself isn't going to change the world. For Trilling, criticism really just points the way to the real life-changing force, and that's literature. Uh, Do you guys disagree with that?
0: Well, I I don't disagree with it. I, You know, I... I don't agree or disagree right now. What struck me is that, you know, this attitude that you describe on the part of critical theory, I mean, assumes that literature has a certain purchase in the world. It has a certain status. And, you know, we talked at the end of that episode, and I, I think it's worth bringing up again, that, you know, part of the absurdity is that it is taking pot shots at Plato and Shakespeare uh, while the student body who is filtering through the classroom probably has never read either of them. But that's all I've got to say about that. (laughs) the,
2: the, The era in which Trilling was writing, the 40s and 50s are arguably the era in American history where intellectualism was at its most mainstream.
0: Oh, certainly, certainly. So, so heroic
2: criticism was popular in his day in a way that, unfortunately, it's not popular anymore. But even if it, or possible anymore, even if it, even if it were possible, though, I don't think people would want it. Critical theory pretty much killed heroic criticism. Um, there were riots, I think, in nineteen sixty-eight at Columbia, and I like the yes. story. So um, during the riots at Columbia, somebody spray painted on Lionel Trilling's office door. Uh, expletive! You, you bourgeoisie pig. Uh, <laughs> apparently unaware that the term they were looking for was bourgeois. That's the adjective, and bourgeoisie is the noun. Right, but right. Th- that's that's kind of symptomatic of what of what the 60s did to people like Trilling.
0: <laughs>
2: I, I think. Anyway, at the same time the heroic critics are trying to save America and the world, there's another group of folks who are much better respected, I think, these days, and that's the American Studies group. American Studies is interdisciplinary, so literature is just one cog in a very large machine. Really, anything related to America or American culture fits in. Um, The discipline looks different today. It's been infiltrated by critical theory. But in the old days, it wasn't too far off from heroic criticism. A guy named Vernon Lewis Parrington supposedly founded the field. He wrote a book I have not read called Main Currents in American Thought, uh, the title of which tells you maybe all you need to know about about how American studies works.
0: I actually Uh, fell asleep hearing the title. I mean, <laughs> really, really, I don't
2: want to read it. Um, two guys I am familiar with, though, and I, I can recommend their books very highly. Leo Marx wrote a really great book about the importance of the Eden myth in American thought. Um, that book is called *The Machine and the Garden*. And a related book by Henry Nash Smith uh, is called Virgin Land. And that's about the flight westward during the 19th century. Those are both really great scholarly books that seek to define exactly what it is to be an American. They use literature to do so. Um, Marx uses more canonical literature. Smith tends toward the uh, pulp fiction. So he, he's hmm. actually moving a little away from traditional literary criticism. But I would say they're a, a major bridge from the old style to critical theory. Um uh, mostly, they're interested in defining what exactly it is to be an American, and uh, American studies these days is probably less interested in such a wide definition. And now, now American studies is much more likely to talk about multiple Americanisms and things like that, and you know, nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. Ah, uh, now that we've defined the contours of literary criticism and defined some of the historical schools that have practiced it. Uh, Let's move into some more general questions. Um, One thing that prompted this topic was an email from our friend Sam Mulberry, who wanted to know how our attempts um, at artistic expression jive with our nonfiction work. Um, There's no need to get personal, although I guess you can if you want, but let's talk about the interaction between artistic and critical production. Nathan, how do those two things merge? Is there a tension between them?
0: Well, I mean, honestly... Of the three of us, I'm probably the most sympathetic towards what we're calling critical theory, and I don't think our listeners, you know, have to be too acute to notice that. Uh, One of the things that I've noted is that a lot of times, and I'm, I'm sure there are exceptions to this, and I welcome our listeners to write to us with those exceptions, but a lot of times when poets try to write about poetry, the output tends to be very naive Uh, And, you know, it's one of those things where you really have to pick sides in this. You know, do poets write best about poetry or do philosophers? And I tend to prefer the philosophers, frankly. Hmm. Uh, I tend to, you know, prefer books, essays, that sort of output from people uh, not who consider themselves a part of the system that they're talking about. Uh, So in other words, you know, when T.S. Eliot writes about uh, tradition and the individual talent, you know, I think that he has a lot of valid points, but I think people who have picked up on him and run with it are better. And, you know, heaven help us if anyone thinks that poetry is anything like what William Wordsworth describes poetry as being, Uh, you know, I, I am I am much more inclined to think of poetry as, you know, something that emerges out of a historical moment. Uh, It's going to be different if you are a court poet for King Alfred uh, than if you are an academic poet in a creative writing department in the 21st century. And, you know, I am interested in those differences, and frankly I'm interested in the ways that scholars and philosophers deal with those differences uh, simply because, I mean, you know, I I guess for the same reason that, you know, when academics write about their own enterprises – Uh, you get things ranging from Pollyanna to utter nihilism. Uh, Whereas, you know, if you read someone, you know, like a John Henry Newman, who isn't at the moment in the Academy, he has some of the most clear-minded stuff to write about the Academy. So it's one of those things, you know, I, I, I don't want to talk about these things as hermetically sealed realms by any means, but I think that some... Well, I think that the the phrase that we have, critical distance, uh, is a valid phrase. I think in order to judge, Croesus, you know, in the Greek, uh, you do have to distance yourself from that which you're judging. Now, David, tell me how wrong I am. I'll tell you how <laughs> wrong you are. <laughs> um,
3: what I'd rather do um, is... Point out uh, people, uh, several people who I thought were good critics, but also good artists, and good artists who were also good critics. Um, you know, I, yeah, Tol- Tolkien himself. Um, I think, uh, and I actually wrote a paper on this once. That you can you can do readings of some of the some of the way uh, the metaphysical structure. Of uh, of Middle Earth as laid out in the Silmarillion, and as it plays out practically in the Lord of the Rings, um, actually mimics the the structure that Tolkien lays out in his On Fairy Stories essay uh, in and how he thinks story works, and how he thinks it fits with uh, with reality, in particular uh, the, the the theological realities of of being human, of being made in the image of God. Um, you know, if you read also, if you read *The Lord of the Rings* and read *Beowulf*, the monsters and the critics, you uh, you can see one as the imaginative fictional exploration of of what the other does uh, in a in a scholarly setting in a reading of a work. Uh, you can almost read uh, *The Lord of the Rings* as a as a commentary on *Beowulf*. Um, I, I think they absolutely played in. Uh, played into each other. Um, Dorothy Sayers' Mind of the Maker. I think you know she's she's an artist, and she writes uh, she writes about art, but she's also uh, very learned about uh, about the way literature works, and she's a very conscious artist who um, you know you know as you say, Nathan, she's internalized Aristotle. So what she does uh, she does both naturally. Um, this is how her imagination works, but also she's, she's, uh, she's aware of it. She's thought about it. She's in, in, in some ways, uh, has systematized it. Um, you know, and, and, and I could talk about others. Chesterton wrote some, some really fun studies of, uh, Dickens, I think. Um, but we also know Chesterton for his, uh, for his fiction and his, uh, his essays. Um. And I I don't I don't see as much tension between these because uh, a lot of my great, you know, heroes of book learning um are people who who have done both. So yeah.
2: Yeah, and and I I mean I'm I'm against you too, Nathan. I think <laughs> there's obviously people who just do literary criticism who I like quite a bit. I, I mentioned Trilling. I like Leslie Fiedler who wrote a, a great book called love and death in the American novel I like Frederick Cruz I like uh, Frederick R Carl I, uh, I I do like people who who just do criticism or mostly do criticism trilling actually I think tried to write two novels that weren't very well received but uh, <laughs> in general I would rather read stuff on fiction written by people who write fiction so hmm. like I love um, I love TS Eliot's nonfiction essays on literature. I, I love uh, James Baldwin. I love Ralph Ellison when they when they write about uh, fiction. Uh, this, of course, wasn't going to go an entire hour without me bringing up John Updike's enormous <laughs> output of literary criticism, which I think is really some of his best work, maybe better than his novels. I'm, I'm personally much more interested in reading that stuff, and, and maybe that's because... Um, i'm not as careful a reader as i should be and that stuff is easier and more fun to read that 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 possibility exists i certainly don't want to put down professional literary critics because um i don't um I, I don't write fiction in any concerted way and i'd like people to take me seriously but when it when it comes to uh when it when it when it comes to wanting to sit down and read literary criticism typically i want to read something by a uh by a by an artist rather
0: than a uh, professional critic. Although, oh, that's interesting. Those, those, I, you know, those I,
2: lines can be blurred,
0: right? I I and that's interesting. I mean, you two focused almost exclusively on 20th century figures, and I hadn't even thought of that when I read the show notes, Michael. I was thinking of, you know, William Wordsworth and Samuel Coleridge, and you mm-hmm. know, sort of those Romantic era guys who, you know, thought that they basically knew about their own projects in a way that, you know, struck me as incredibly naive Uh, I mean I I think I can concede that you know 20th century figures like the folks you're talking about probably mix those two uh, better than the folks I had in mind when I read the question Mm
3: -hmm. you all I also noticed uh, at even as as we were talking wait a minute the the people that Michael and I keep bringing up are tend to be novelists or at least fiction prose fiction writers and the people that you name are poets, right? Um, I mean, I,
0: you know, I yeah, I mean, you know, that, that that's <laughs> one of those things. You know, I love John Milton, but I mean, do I believe for a second that his account of himself as a poet accounts for him as a poet? No, I don't.
2: And there's also a difference between an artist talking about him or herself and talking about other artists,
0: right? And I get, and I guess that's again, you know, what I read into the question because I do, you know, think about. And write about Milton more than I do about novelists. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, I think we can all agree that there's
2: good people on both sides of this divide, and and that there is a way to do both things, even if it's not done as often as we'd like to see it. Is that is that a fair is that a fair statement?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm-hmm. Well, now, but- on the other hand, I mean, would you guys grant that you know? Uh, the best person to ask about what poetry is is not a grad student in creative writing.
2: Oh uh, oh. Yes. <laughs>
3: the,
2: the best person to ask to write a poem for you is not a grad student in creative writing.
3: Ow, I wasn't gonna go that far.
0: I... <laughs> That's just mean. Well,
3: I, I was gonna say that that the the people that I named, the people who are kind of my my pantheon of great scholar writers, I think their writing was better for their scholarship. Yes. Um, I, I think it worked both ways. Not just that I feel like they were more insightful in their criticism and in their in their writing about writing, because they were themselves artists. I think their art is actually better too, because of because of their scholarship. Tolkien writes world's better fantasy than pretty much anyone else in the field because he was a medieval scholar and he knew the way that worked I mean I've, I've read I've imbibed a lot of fantasy particularly in my adolescence and a lot of it could have been science fiction it could have been a western it could have been any other kind of story all you had to do was change the character's clothes um, and you know and weapons yeah and change their weapons
2: we, When you do both, too, and I, I say this as someone who doesn't do either one of them very well, but when you do both, it seems to me like it creates a very helpful tension. And Updike talks about this, um, and I, I don't know if this is him quoting somebody else or if he came up with this himself, I'd believe either. He says that um, writing fiction is like swimming out to sea and writing criticism is like hugging the shore. <clears throat> So you, you really need both if you're going to have any sense of adventure and simultaneously stay alive. <laughs> I, I guess is the idea. I, I mean, I can't I can't praise Updike highly enough, as everyone who's in, ever listened to this show knows. But uh, if you haven't read, if you haven't read his criticism, it's something it's something you need to read. It's uh, it's excellent, and I I think he's he's kind of my example of how you can do both and do both very well and not have one take over the other. But uh, if we're talking about Wordsworth and Coleridge, uh, Nathan, yeah, I'm with you. All right. (laughs) Uh, Now we'll get personal. Uh, David, to what extent would you say that your own academic output is something akin to literary criticism? And and this includes the work you do on the blog as well as your more officially academic work.
3: Mm, ah, Reading Auden helped really, uh, really, really helped me to think about this question. Um, because thinking about it, I don't think I've ever written. Uh, I don't think I've ever done any serious work, uh, you know, for 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 seminar papers, any or anything like that. Presentations on a work that I did not actively love, and for which my argument could not be boiled down to: "Here, audience, is a reason why you should love this." Uh, and and uh, I, I guess reading Auden made me aware the degree to which uh, the way I treat literature is uh, what Auden talks about, bringing attention to the goodness and the pleasure in works that uh, sometimes are ignored, or perhaps the the virtues and you know if the virtues themselves are ignored, even if the work normally gets attention. Um, I, I I think that's one of the you know think, thinking about it I, I believe that's one of the things that motivates what I do uh, the works that I study are, are works that I love that I get an immense amount of pleasure out of and uh, even though I haven't consciously thought of it in this way um it seems like a lot of my scholarship the scholarship that I produce has turned out to be justifications of that love and explanations of why, why that love should be more widespread than it is. Uh, that's, that's as much as I can say.
0: Nathan, how about you? Well, my own work, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm probably the most sympathetic to critical theory of the three of us. And the way that I've described my own work is that I do tend to think of literature as a series of nodes within a larger cultural textual network. That said, I think that the works that have become great works uh, have become so because they are especially complex and especially potent nodes of meaning within those networks. So in other words, you know, I, 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 I don't want to you know be a simplistic Hegelian here, but I think that you know I, I have tried to synthesize what I see as the best elements of the new criticism and the best elements of something like cultural materialism or new historicist criticism. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that, you know, when I... I, I my, my own work tends not to be uh, apologetic for works. Uh, I do tend to be more of a critical reader uh, in, the, in the critical theory sense. Uh, but, you know, I do try to acknowledge the grand complexity in a way that, unfortunately, is often lacking in a lot of new historicist and certainly a lot of deconstructive reading how about okay. you Michael
2: well I do um, I think I do my best to follow Wilde's dictum even though I'm not an aesthete I, I, I don't think that a, uh, a work of criticism should ever make an, a, a, a work of literature less complex mm-hmm. so I, I think you you pile your reading on the top of it and it, it actually deepens the, the reader's experience of the original text. Right. I can so, agree with that. So, so in your way, you're serving the text. You're not, you're not serving the reader. Um, so I guess that's a little bit wild in a little bit heroic. Uh,
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: And, and probably a little bit critical theorist. If you, uh, if you break it down, although I don't care to do that, uh, <laughs> we, we are rapidly nearing the end of our time. Uh, even though I, I'm sure we don't mind if we go over this week since it's our last. But let's uh, let's move quickly to our takeaway question. We live in an academic world that's heavily, heavily influenced by critical theory, certainly at the expense of these other schools of literary criticism. At the same time, critical theory largely seems to be on the decline in the American Academy and certainly at the sorts of schools uh, Nathan teaches at and David and I hope to teach at. So... What does literary criticism look like in a post-theory age? Are we going to see a return to one of these other schools? Are we going to see something that uh, does a Hegelian synthesis of criticism and theory? What are we going to see, Nathan?
0: Well, in schools like mine, because my department is so small, it, it actually functions as a small laboratory of sorts for these sorts of things. So it's interesting that the way I imagine my own work, it is far less influenced by what's going on in the peer-reviewed journals now than it was when I was teaching over at the University of Georgia. Uh, So in other words, I think that there is a potential there and a danger there uh, that comes from what I do at a small school. The potential is that I can... Go in directions that are not in vogue in, you know, uh, English Literary Renaissance or Milton Quarterly. Uh, the danger is that I can become an island of sorts uh, because I will probably be the only one, uh, certainly in this department and by extension in this college, teaching a given upper division English course. Uh, I basically stand as the voice of criticism for that piece. Uh, so I have to be very, very careful to take into account what's going to be good educationally. And, you know, part of the dilemma there is that, you know, I don't think that a lot of what's going on in Milton Quarterly is especially helpful. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't want to set myself up as one versus the world when it comes to that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, when I teach, you know, this... Coming spring, the spring of uh, 2011, I'm going to be teaching a course on Greek tragedies and some Virgil and some Dante. Register now. Yes. Mm. uh, And, you know, one of the dilemmas I'm going to face is, you know, how much do I heed the voice of the trends in the journals? Because really, I mean, that's where critical theory holds its sway. Not nearly as much in the classroom, in my experience, as in the scholarly literature. Uh, David, I mean, you know, what kinds of questions are you asking about this?
3: Well, uh, theory may be on the decline, but because, uh, it, it, it asked the questions that it asked and uh, raised the issues that, uh, that it raised, um, those questions and those issues aren't going to go away. So. Whatever the next thing is, is still going to have um, uh, still going to have to answer questions and address issues that, that that criticism was interested in, and may come and 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 may come up with, with you know this, some of the same answers. Um, I I, I got to say this is something that I fight with uh, I, I fight with myself, um, and actually is. An ongoing conversation in in medieval studies because medievalists uh, have not been as as wholeheartedly committed to the theory project as uh, some other uh, areas of the English departments. Uh, I would point to uh, a book by Lee Patterson. Uh, it was written in 1987, so it was kind of the 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 flush of criticism at, at, at was was at that time, um, and that's what Patterson was answering. But it's called negotiating the past, uh, the historical understanding of medieval literature, and what he does is basically ev- evalu- presents a presents a history of criticism and where he thinks things are going next, and. Uh, for for him it's the fight between saying, Yes, there is such a thing as historical moment and context, and yes, it does shape and mold and and determine a lot, but by gum, there still is some kind of individual in the middle who can rise above it in some way. Um and I, I, I think that's that's kind of where I'd ended up. And I'd hope I I'd hope that Maybe, maybe that's what criticism will look like an awareness of all of the different factors that shape and mold culture, but also maybe some little preservation of maybe the possibility of some little heroic individual in the middle of all of it that can shout back. I don't know.
2: Well, I, um, I think we might actually see a non-academic return to the world of Alden, and let me explain what I mean by that. I don't think the academic journals are going to turn back to literary criticism. I think they're going to continue down the road which they're on, um, which which is going to be, I think, a studies mentality, feminist studies, um, queer studies. Uh, race studies th- that that sort of thing and, and environmental studies I think is going to be the next huge one. I don't think you're going to be able to open a peer-reviewed journal without seeing 15 articles about the environment. Yeah. Um, but I think what you're going to see on the internet is literature blogs that look an awful lot like the old book sections of newspapers did. Hmm. I, I I certainly I think that's the kind of thing i write anyway on um on the christian humanist blog when i write about literature and i, I, I when, when i read when i read literary blogs which i do every day I, I that that's what i see is a return to the uh the book section of the newspaper now it's not hmm. um there's no there's no quality standard and that's a big problem and i, I i'm certainly not proposing Uh, that blogs should be a substitute for that kind of thing. I would love to see every major newspaper in the country have a book section again. But what I'm saying is that literary criticism in the old sense lives on on literary blogs in a way that it certainly does not in academic journals and in a way it, it doesn't look like it's going to in the separate book section. So that's something to maybe not get too down about. Uh, that's it for season two of the Christian Humanist podcast uh, we will see you three times over the summer once in May once in June and once in July and we will be back with season three a new theme song a new introduction and it looks like a new icon and we'll be back sometime in August in the meantime right. you can send us an email at the Christian Humanist at gmail.com you can visit our website at www.christianhumanist.org for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs this is Michael Farmer saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong. So the
1: same time.